Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane. We're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. We're going to continue looking at the Holy Gospel according to St. Mark. And today we're going to take a look at the 12th chapter, the 28th to the 34th verse. It is the very familiar, very well-known, and oft-quoted gospel concerning the great commandments. And uh, so it begins, one of the scribes came up to Jesus and put a question to him. The question was, which is the first of all the commandments? And Jesus replied, this is the first. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one, is the one Lord. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you must love your neighbor as yourself. Now, here we have, usually this is kind of an interesting, very interesting gospel, because usually when uh, a scribe comes up to question Jesus, the intention is to catch him in some kind of a trap, to get him to take sides in a very common argument among the rabbis. And so that those who disagreed with him would be able to um, kind of put him into the other person's camp and therefore be dismissive of what he said and let those who follow him know, well, you know, he's not one of us, he's one of them, so if you agree with them and so forth. So usually the intention of the question was incredibly divisive. What happens in this particular time is that Jesus, this is not a trap, So this is not an attempt. This seems to be kind of a legitimate question by the scribe. Because what happened was that uh, it is a legal question. And the problem was that within Judaism of the day, there were 613 distinct commandments. 248 of them were positive, you shall do. And 365 are negative, you shall not do. The rabbis argue at length about which of these took priority over others. When you have as many as 613 distinct commandments, there's going to be times where you're going to have to put some of these in the balance and make a choice between some of them. And this is what the, the rabbis delighted in and in the, what, they, what they spent a great deal of time on. The scribe's question is a legal question, and he asks it honestly and, uh, and seeking some kind of a response from Jesus. What Jesus does, however, is that Jesus goes back and he begins with what is called the Shema Israel, that he goes back to the great um, proclamation of Deuteronomy, um, Deuteronomy 6, chapter, verse 4 and following. And he quotes this, the first of the great commandments that we are so familiar with. You shall love the Lord your God, hero Israel. The Lord your God is one Lord, and you must love the Lord your God with your whole heart, your whole soul, your whole mind, and with all your strength. And so he quotes Deuteronomy. Well, the scribe is, is then silent, and Jesus continues. And he goes from Deuteronomy to Leviticus 19.18. And what he then does is quote the love of neighbor. The commentators don't, don't agree necessarily on whether that second part, the part from Leviticus, is part of the Shema Israel at the time of Jesus. 
And some say that it must have been that it was. In any case, Jesus is quoting to them from the Torah and quoting to them that which was very familiar to them, whether together or separate. In so doing, then, he bypasses the 316 distinct laws, and he goes directly into the heart of the matter, the relationship between God and his people and the relationship of God's people with one another. And it leaves us then also with some very, very interesting and some very, very significant reflections within our own life. We hear and we have heard often of the Shema Israel. We have heard, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and so forth. We've also heard the love your neighbor as yourself. And... Um, and that uh, there is no commandment greater than these, Jesus says. The scribe is kind of taken aback by Jesus' answer. And he says to him, Well spoken, Master, what you have said is true, that he is one and there is no other, to love with all your heart, with all your understanding and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. This is far more important than any holocaust or sacrifice. Jesus seeing how wisely the scribe had spoken, said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to question him anymore. The problem is, with the great commandment, is what does it mean for us? It's clear here in the gospel exactly what has been in place for the whole duration of God's relationship with his people. It is embedded and buried deep and is an essential part of the Torah. And therefore it has been compelling for the Hebrews long before the coming and the birth of Christ. And it is intact since the birth of Christ, as Jesus reaffirms it in today's gospel, by going back and simply saying, this is your heritage, this you should understand, that the whole commandment is this, love God and love your neighbor. One of the things then that enters deeply into our own reflection and our own minds when we think of this is what does it mean to love God and what does it mean to love our neighbor? We know that John takes up this theme in some of his letters and says to love God is to obey him. To love the Lord is to follow his commandments. And so behavior and, and affection have an unbreakable link between them in the story of the love of God and love of neighbor. And in this, then, we confront kind of the vagaries of human emotions, of human affections, and we wonder what it means. And when we say to ourselves, well, if I can learn to love God, then derivatively, I should be able to love those whom God loves. The other hand, the other side of the coin of that is, however, what does it mean to love someone? What does that mean? Is that somehow a cold definition? Is that somehow something that we can say, all right, I love God, I, I do everything right, I follow all his commandments. It's like the rich young man. I do everything you say, Lord, everything. And, uh, and I make, you know, I make no distinctions. Um, and so, but what more do I need? And that's when Jesus said, give yourself to me completely. And the young man, of course, refused. 
What was love simply the obeying of the commandments, or was love therefore a great act of self-giving? And I think that we can take that, and then we can bring it back into our own experience. I think it would be very difficult to say, I love God, when we don't like anybody around us. I think it would be very difficult to say, I love God, when we don't love other human beings as well. Because somehow or other, the whole idea of our relationship with the divine is tied up in some way with our capacity to have a relationship in our daily lives with people who are around us, with people with whom we live, with whom we work, who are part of whatever communities we may belong to, part of whatever world we ourselves happen to live in. And that in this, we learn the human. We speak in human language. And in this speaking in human language, we rely on human emotions and human experience to articulate that language. We want to articulate feelings. We want to articulate insights. We want to articulate moments of, of, of wisdom, of enlightenment. We, we, we want to identify error. We want to do all of those kinds of things. And we have to express each of those about ourselves in some way, shape, or form, and our relationship with other people. So that the vocabulary of human love is established conceptually by the experiences of human love that we have as we journey through our own lives. That means that if I have no friends, I can't really understand the meaning of friendship. That means if I have never been loved, which is one of the great tragedies of abandoned and abused children and so forth, then how do I know what that word means? If I grow up in a family that's supportive, caring, and all of those kind of things from the time I'm a small child, then I can say, well, love is feeding me when I'm hungry. Love is clothing me when I need clothes. Love is paying attention to me when I need attention. It's, it's consoling me when I'm sad. It's, it's nursing me when I'm sick. It's all those kinds of things that you learn in, in an integral family. And, uh, and so that creates for me then the vocabulary that I have to transfer to whatever my affections are for the living God. I can say then, I know what it means to be loved. And I know what it is to be grateful for being loved. And so in that way, then, I can say that I love God because God has been kind to me. He has created me as I am. He has allowed me my own personhood. He has provided life itself to me and so forth. And so I can be appreciative of that. And in my appreciation, I can experience in some way, shape, or form the stirrings of a sense of affection, the stirrings of a sense of care, the stirrings of a sense of a desire to know more, to be closer, and so forth. So the whole dynamic of our human life experience is integral into our understanding of the word and what it means to love. Love is a cheap word in our society, and it can mean just about anything. 
And, uh, and so it's not really a useful word for us in kind of a general or generic context. It has to be very special, very specific for us to come to understand what it is exactly that love is and what we are supposed to learn from it and do for it. Love, ultimately, in the normal order of things, is the giving of the self away for the sake of the other. And certainly this is what this uh, sacrament of marriage is constructed to be, a total self-giving to another, because you have learned to care for them, you have learned to care about them, you have learned to trust them, and you have learned to give yourself in many ways over to them and to allow yourself, therefore, to be part of the sustenance and part of the strength of their own character, of their own person. We know also that in religious life, that it is this, this learning, what it means that love is losing and not gaining, that love is giving away more than the intention is to gain something from it. And that's part of the struggle of anyone who goes through the, uh, the process of the religious life, that the sense of loss becomes increasingly dramatic as the person progresses, and at the same time the desire to allow the loss to take place for the sake of another is that which enhances and, and sanctifies the person. All of this, then, is important for us to grapple with, to understand. We also, when we shake our heads, for instance, or are critical of the society in which we live because it no longer believes, we, we have to realize that there are many, many people in our societies who no longer experience that kind of human love, who no longer experience that kind of care and so forth that they are supposed to have, that they are supposed to build their human emotions and their human vocabulary on. And so they come up in a way short of words because they have a, a smallness of consciousness of what those words might mean. And they find, therefore, that which other people talk about being totally foreign and irrelevant to them. And as they do so, they begin to reject that experience of which they are not a part. I think it's interesting that back in the 50s and the 60s, in the great age of the, of the French existentialists, um, they grappled with this idea, too. What does it mean? What is it, what is it all about? They themselves, in, in the first wave of, uh, of what we might call anti-Christianity, certainly in the wave of Marxism and many other isms and ideologies and wars and so forth, that the whole idea of loving someone became, became kind of... Uh, it either had to convert itself into a fleshly understanding of the word love or into kind of a, a um, compatibility of some, in some way, shape, or form, people who like to do the same thing. But one of the great existentialists was, uh, was um, Albert Camus. And he wrote, he wrote a book called The Plague. And it was kind of a fascinating book. Because it was a story of, uh, he was himself from North Africa, and there was a story of a plague that ravaged the city in North Africa. And that everybody, and then he goes through the reactions of all the different people and everything, and a doctor emerges as one who, who selflessly um, tends to the plague victims, um, eventually himself succumbs to it, um, 
But in the meantime, the whole purpose and meaning of his life for the existentialist became that he distinguished himself as a man of great honor. And so honor became kind of the characteristic of the noble person. And that's fine, but it stops there with a man whose life is terminated and yet goes to his grave as an honorable man. Is that the most humanity can hope for? Was that the most? It was the most that they could hope for in that day and age, as they struggled, some authentically and some just to feed their own uh, their own intellects and their own kind of interests. But some actually did struggle and look for: Is there anything else? Is there anything else? Well, this is part of the thing that Jesus is addressing in this gospel. Because this preceding this gospel is his confrontation with the Sadducees who do not believe in the resurrection of the dead and who are trying to use the Levitical law on marriage as a way to complicate and make look ridiculous and ludicrous the whole idea of an afterlife being, being understood as nothing more than the resuscitation of a dead body. And, uh, and that, of course, is juvenile. So the Lord then does not, he, he powerfully answers them. He said, you know, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And for he says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And who of the, who of the Sadducees are going to declare them that they do no longer live among the peoples of Israel or live in the, in the hearts and the minds of the people of Israel? So he kind of stops them, but it moves from that. Then that's what brings the scribe forward to ask the question. And the idea is that love, true love, does not end in the grave. That if you give yourself to another in the vocabulary of love that we humanly understand through our own experiences and so forth, there is something transcendent about that. There is something more than just the immediate there is something more than Camus' idea of honor. What, there is something more than that. There is something that reaches beyond the people who care for each other, the people who love for each other, and brings them to the deep suspicion and the deep conviction that this is just not all there is. And I think that one of the powerful times that we began to experience this is to do so at a funeral, where people might have, might have given up the practice of the faith, but they come to the burial of someone that they deeply and really cared for, and in the deep caring for those people, they, they have a special kind of grief because in their minds, having abandoned the faith, they no longer consciously think of an afterlife. Yet at the same time, deep down inside of them, there is a suspicion that this is not all there is. This is just not possibly all there can be. You love someone, you care for someone, you have all this goodness, you have all this commitment to each other, and then all of a sudden there's nothing. People don't want to think of it that way. They just dismiss the idea of an afterlife without thinking of what that really means. And so I think one thing at a funeral is that people can be challenged in their own hearts. Do you really believe 
that this is all there was to this person's existence? Do you really believe that everything that was is no more? Do you really believe that this person no longer has an existence of any kind and that never, ever will you ever again experience them, encounter them, or be with them? When you put it in those kinds of terms, people, people step back then and say to themselves, and at least ask the question, an important question, is that all there is to life? And most people will answer with some kind of hopefulness. If they do not say, I believe and therefore I am convinced, they might at least say, well, maybe it is possible because certainly for this simply to end makes no sense to us whatsoever. And the result of it is, if they land on the makes no sense to us whatsoever, the result of it is also they make no sense of their own lives either. And that's a much more difficult thing for them to live with, to believe that their life has no meaning and no purpose. Ultimately, whatever good you might do, ultimately there is nothing. So when we look at this gospel, and then when we turn to this gospel, we find, we find ourselves confronted with an interesting situation. The scribe, who is looking for a legal judgment on the 316 particular laws, um, comes to the Lord, but is open to what the Lord has to say. And when the Lord trumps all of his cards by quoting the Torah, the man reflects and thinks and says to himself, well spoken, master, what you have said is true, that he is one and there is no other. To love all with all our heart, with all our understanding and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, this is far more important than any holocaust or sacrifice. Because love is the connectivity between time and eternity. Love is that which enables us deep in our soul to connect and to believe that what the Lord has created, he will never destroy. What the Lord has made, he will not abandon. And just as in the previous gospel, that when the gospel speaks, when the scripture speaks of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, deep down inside, deep down inside, the Jews know, even the, even the Sadducees know, that if they are to proclaim them dead, then nothing they did or stood for is binding because nothing exists beyond the grave. And so this is not just an affirmation of a good-hearted scribe, but this is also a radical condemnation of what we might call the non-theistic um, existentialists of, of the first century, that those who have struggled to find some kind of meaning in life, for, for Camus it was honor, for these people it was obeying the law. But why in the world would you obey the law if nothing, if it meant nothing beyond the immediate, if it meant nothing at all beyond the moment in which you do obey that law? Why not find some other way to live? Why not find an alternative lifestyle? 
why not find something that doesn't bind us to anything permanent or anything forever? Why not do that? And I think that we actually, in charity, owe it to the culture in which we live to understand that there are many, many, many people who have been deprived in some way of the meaning of their own lives, been deprived in some way of that depth of experience and understanding which gives form and shape to conceptualizing what it means to be cared for and to care for others that give them a vocabulary in which to speak of love of God and love of neighbor. What of those in our society deprived of that vocabulary? And what of those who come even from Christian families, whose families never let us sink below the surface, but wore it on their sleeves in a way very similar to how the doctor wore his honor in the book The Plague? That it is a badge, it is an identity, but it's an identity of the person who is now, and not an identity of the depths of the person who was and who can become. That sometimes this adherence to the 306 and 13 laws that identify us as good people in the midst of the world in which we live do not communicate the depths of the human person, which in fact offers to humanity a a conceptual framework that allows them to use a vocabulary that is related to reality and that reality of love and of caring. I'm not sure. I think it's very difficult for a person who has genuinely been loved to not in some way, shape, or form be capable of loving others. Um, Such things could happen and such things can... the, The whole mystery of the human mind and the human psyche comes into play. But very honestly... If we have experienced that, then we have in some way, shape, or form understood the richness of it, the depths of it, and the goodness of it. And we ourselves desire it. We ourselves seek it. The Certainly, marriage becomes in the scriptures and in reality the, the normal place where this works itself out in a person's life, where the husband or the wife begins to care more about the other's well-being than about their own begins to care more about their children's well-being than they do their own. And when that takes place, then the great gift of love has been bestowed by that parent or that partner on the other. And in so doing, enlivened within the other person, the capacity and the desire to live a life of love. And when, in fact, they can see how the dynamic works... And if they are attentive enough to the Gospels and to the Word of God and to, the, and to the, the teaching of the Church and the lives of the saints, they come to understand, yes, it is possible to love God because I perceive Him to be the source of what has allowed me to live and allowed me to be loved and allowed me to love. And therefore, through my own human experience, I can begin to understand in some way, shape, or form a love of God who is the source of the benevolent giver of that experience. When we look at this gospel and we read this gospel, it might sound as we reflected on it, maybe abstract, but it's not. Love is concrete and love is real. And anyone who experiences cannot 
and will not believe that it, it ends in death completely and is no more. That which comes into our souls from God is not something that passes away in death. When we come to that realization and that encounter in our lives, we believe in the afterlife. We believe and we trust in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We believe and we trust in the words that he says, that there is nothing greater than to love him and our neighbor as ourself. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.